while you're turning there, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Who in here has ever heard of Naptime Kitchen? Oh, okay. There's like four of you. Okay. I can honestly say I have never heard of Naptime nap Kitchen, and I don't know her name, so I'll refer to her as Naptime Kitchen Lady. Uh, but I, I think it's an Instagram platform, and I think her followers are primarily moms, maybe women in general. But she gives her followers practical tips and advice on how to do things more practically, more efficiently, cheaper, all these things in your home. And Brittany just really likes this lady. She follows this lady. And I think sometimes the lady shares, you know, just personal thoughts or funny stories or whatever. Brittany likes her so much and has followed her so long. Well, I say so long. I don't, really don't know how long. But she'll sometimes refer to her tongue-in-cheek as my best friend. <clears throat> of course, Naptime Lady has no idea who we are. <laughs> But Brittany's not alone in that. You all have probably heard of my best friend, Steph Curry. Uh, why, why the laughter? Why the laughter? Me and Steph, we've been friends for a long time. We've won four NBA championships together. Nine days from now, we're going to begin a campaign for our fifth ring. There's not a Golden State article that I haven't read, and there's not a playoff game that I haven't watched, but you wouldn't believe the fact that Steph Curry still pretends like he doesn't know I exist. We laugh, and it's a silly illustration, but we can all picture someone like that in our lives, probably even today, but certainly from our childhood, that someone that we knew from afar, we kept up with them, we watched them, we read all the things about them, so much so that we felt like we knew them. But in reality, we only knew a little bit about them, and they certainly knew nothing about us. Now, with that person in your mind, the, whoever it was that you viewed in that way, think about what it would have been like or what it would be like if you still have a person like that today. If that person came up to you and said, hey, Austin, not only do I know your name, I know who you are. And not only do I know who you are, I want us to be in relationship together. So not just a friendship, I want you in my family. We would be on cloud nine if that happened. And that's where Paul has brought the Galatians in this, in this letter. And that's where we're going to pick up in just a moment. The Galatians had known about God or, or the idea of God from afar but they certainly didn't know him until they heard the gospel. And then they heard the gospel, and they put their faith in Jesus, and Scripture says that they received his spirit, and that through his spirit they received adoption as children of God. The creator of the universe, and we're not talking about a sports hero or a, or a movie star or an inventor, an artist, anything like that. We're talking the creator of the universe came and adopted them as children. And so we're going to see Paul ask them, why, why would you forget that truth? And why would you exchange it for something less than that? So before we dive into today's text, I think it would be a really good thing for us just to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today by reading the last few verses that Kyle preached um, last week. So if you will, 
Look with me at uh, Galatians 4.4, 4, and we're going to read through verse 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Remember, that's like Dad. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In the fullness of time, God had brought all of the events to human, in human history to this one moment where he sent his son Jesus. The word became flesh. And he lived perfectly. And not only did he never sin, he fulfilled every good aspect of the law, every good demand of the law in a way that we could never do. And then he allowed himself, he volunteered himself to be crucified, to have his hands pierced and his nails, and his, and his feet pierced, his side pierced, hang in front of his creation, naked, bruised, and battered, so that you and so that me, so that I, and anyone else who put their faith in Jesus could be adopted into his family, adopted as a child of God. That was the same gospel message that the Galatians had received. That was the same truth that they had received. It was incredible because all of us, we were all slaves to sin before we put our faith in Jesus. And it certainly manifested itself. Our sinful nature manifested itself um, in a variety of ways. But compared to the Galatians, we were all really good. And we'll talk about why in just a moment. But they had received this great news, and then they began to desert it and forget it and believe a lie instead. And so let's read uh, the first part of our text today. We're going to ultimately go from 8 to 20, but we're going to start with just 8 through 11. We'll talk about that, and then we'll end with the second uh, half. So starting in verse 8, <clears throat> formerly... When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you turn back to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The Galatians had come to know Jesus, had come to know God as their father, as their heavenly father. And then the Judaizers came in. And the Judaizers, as we've heard throughout uh, this series of Galatians, were teaching, yes, you have to believe in Jesus to be saved, but that's not enough. If you really want to please God, if you really want to go to heaven, if you really want to do all that needs to be done, you have to keep the Jewish law. And the Galatians began to believe that. And they would have never said it. But by submitting to the Jewish law, their lives were testifying that they didn't believe that what Jesus did on their behalf was enough to fully merit God's satisfaction, his, his pleasure in them. By submitting to the Jewish law, they were testifying with their lives that they thought that they could add something to what Jesus had already done. What he did on the cross was not enough. 
to merit God's love for them. And so when we believe the gospel, the same thing that we saw in that section of scripture uh, that happened for the Galatians happened for us. Our chains were loosed. We were no longer slaves to sin. We were slaves to righteousness. We were no longer far away from God. We were brought near to God. We were no longer in the darkness. We were in the light. All of that happened when we believed in Jesus. And the same thing happened for the Galatians. But a moment ago, I told you that all of us, no matter how bad we may have been, how our sin may have manifested itself, we probably looked pretty good in our eyes against the Galatians. And the reason that's true is because they were, from their earliest memories, deeply devout pagans. They, we don't know a lot about their religion, but Paul gives us a little bit of insight. I'm actually going to just recap a, a few verses of what we just read. And this tells us a little bit about what their religion was. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. So how can you turn back once more to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the law, whose slaves you want to be again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. So we don't know their exact religion, but we know that they were pagans because they were serving what Paul said were gods that weren't even really gods. What did Paul mean by that? Well, scripture isn't shy about the fact that there are lesser beings in the spiritual realm than our God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. There are lesser spirits that the Bible refers to with a little g, gods. They exist and they rebel against the one who created them, our God, so much so that they try to garner worship from his creation for themselves. They try to steal God's worship and have it for, their, for themselves. And that's the reason that Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are lesser gods or spirits in this heavenly realm, but that's the reason that our God is more than 20 times throughout the Old Testament referred to as the Most High God, God Most High. That's not an empty title. That's not just empty flattery. He is literally the most high God. And so to worship anything less than that is, for lack of a better word, just pathetic. Why would you want to worship a lesser God? And the Galatians took that a step further. Paul said, you worship things that were gods that weren't even real gods by their own nature. And so what we know about them is they weren't worshiping actual spiritual entities. They were worshiping created nature. They were worshiping, most likely, uh, celestial lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, planets, stuff like that. And that's the reason that they oriented their worship and their lives around the seasons, the months, the weeks, and the years, because as the lunar calendar shifted, as the planets realigned, as the stars moved, they would change the, how they worshipped. Their worship was in accordance with the, the sky, most likely. Believe it or not, we have people here today in our culture, in Jackson, Mississippi, who I know, who still live according to pagan rituals, who still worship the things of the sky, 
who still orient their lives and the days that they celebrate, the seasons that they celebrate, all of those things, according to lunar calendars, according to the seasons. And because of that, I'm going to make just a footnote to, um, to this sermon. I'm not going to go far down this rabbit trail. But anything like a horoscope that relies on the stars and the planets and lunar calendars and all of that stuff to tell you who you are or to tell you what life has for you or to give you meaning in your life, any of that is intricately woven into paganism. It's not like a third, fourth generation, fourth cousin, second, two times removed type relationship. It's inseparable from paganism. It is to paganism what tarot cards and witchcraft and fortune telling is to New Ageism. It's, it's one and the same. And for those of us who have been adopted by the Most High God, we are to have nothing to do with the darkness. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> so in the Galatians' former religion, they had likely feared what would happen if they didn't orient their lives around these seasons, around the planet's alignment, around what the sun was doing, because they were afraid of what would happen if they didn't worship rightly. Perhaps the sun would scorch their uh, crops. Perhaps uh, floods would come. Perhaps no rain would come. Any kind of calamity could happen if they didn't worship rightly. So in a sense, their worship was to appease this distant God. It was, in a way, to manipulate what they thought was manipulating the gods of the skies so that they weren't punished. But of course, they, those gods that they were worshiping had no idea what they were. They had no idea what these people were even doing. They didn't know the people existed. And that's why in verse 8, Paul reminds them, you used to be enslaved to gods that were by nature not even gods. And then he reminded them of what happened when they believed the gospel. They received the spirit of the one true God, the most high God, such that they were adopted into his family. And so Paul says, not only have you come to know God, but now God knows you. And most of us in here probably know this, but just in case... um, when Scripture uses the term, the word know, like this, usually it's not talking about something intellectual. It's talking about a deep-seated relationship, a commitment uh, to one another. So Amos 3.2, God speaks through the, prophets and, through the prophet Amos and says, Of all the families on the earth, of all the nations on the earth, Israel have I known. God knew who the Hittites were. He knew the Jebusites. He knew the Canaanites. He knew all the ites. But the Israelites, he knew deeply. He was committed to them. He was covenanted to them. Similarly, Jesus said that on the last day, whenever he comes, this is in Matthew 7, that when he comes on the last day, there will be people who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all of these amazing things in your name? I did miracles. I cast out demons. All of this in your name. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. These people were doing good things in the name of Jesus, but they never entered into that covenant relationship with him through faith. And so Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. So Paul is telling the Galatians, 
you used to serve these, these deities that weren't even deities, who didn't know you existed, and now you've come to know, and not only know the one true God, but to be known by him. God has, not only are you committed to serving him, he has covenanted himself to you. He loves you. So it's no wonder why Paul would be just befuddled at the way they have, they have exchanged that to go back to being enslaved to the law, to being enslaved to something less than a familial relationship with the one true God. Why would you exchange that for what you had in paganism? Because what, what the Galatians were doing by submitting to the law was trying to earn God's favor, earn his pleasure, manipulate God in the same way that they used to manipulate or think that they were manipulating their former deities. They were, they were worshiping the sun, moon, and stars and all of those things, trying to stave off judgment. And ultimately, that's what they were doing with the Jewish law. And Paul's saying, listen, that is so much, that is so inferior to what you've been given. And those of us, 2,000 years later, we sit in this church and we hear about the Galatians and we think, what dummies? Why, why would they do that? Why would they exchange a familial, adopted, child of God relationship with what they once had in the distant relationship with a far-off deity? But I think we should be slow in our criticism of the Galatians because I think that Oftentimes we buy this lie, the same lie that they bought, we, we buy. It looks a little bit differently in our lives, but it surfaces. And usually we can tell if we've bought the Galatian deception by looking at our motives. So what the Galatians had, what the Galatians had done is they had forgotten that they were saved by grace. They had forgotten that their salvation was a gift of God. They forgot that God's pleasure and his love was only contingent on the work of Jesus Christ. They forgot that all of the blessings that Jesus earned were theirs because they had been unified with Christ through faith. And they'd begun to work. Now I want us to think about our lives. We believed that same gospel. But I want us to take a moment and to evaluate the motives behind why we do some of the good things that we do. Now note that I said the good things that we do. Things that we're supposed to do why do we do them? Why do we read our Bibles? Is it because we love our Heavenly Father so much that we want to know Him the way that He has revealed Himself? We want to more intimately commune with our Savior and we, and we know that He has spoken to us most clearly through His Word? Or is it because we know that we're supposed to read our Bible and if we're going to be a good Christian, that's something we need to do? If we miss a quiet time, or Lord forbid, several quiet times in a row, do we grieve the time that we lost with our Heavenly Father? Do we grieve the time that we lost communing with our Savior through His Spirit? Or do we think He's probably disappointed? He probably is mad. I don't even know that I want to go back and pray. Because how do I go back to God after deserting him for these last, this whole last week? I haven't read the Bible. I haven't prayed. I haven't even thought about him. How do I go back? 
Why do we tithe? Is it because God has given us such an abundance? And whenever I say an abundance, I don't mean financially. I mean God has abundantly blessed us through Christ Jesus by adopting us as his own children, despite the fact that we deserve nothing of the kind. And so we want to give back to his cause. We want to give back to the local church. We want to see our family, our spiritual family, expand to the uttermost parts of the earth. We want to see his kingdom made much of. Is that why we give? Or do we give because we're a little bit nervous of what might happen to our finances if we don't? Maybe we won't get that promotion. Maybe we won't get that job. Maybe the economy won't turn around in time. Why do we do the good things that we do? Is it because we're joyfully obeying what God calls us to do because he's given us so much and we are mere children trying to please their father? Or do we do the good things that we do because at best God expects it of us and we have to? Or at worst, because he might just judge us if we don't. Why do we do what we do? The Galatians had forgotten that they were children of God. And so they stopped living like it. And so when we live, when we look at our lives, are we living like the Galatians did? Are we living as though there is more for us to earn, that there's more that we could do Uh, to merit God's favor than what Jesus already did? Or do we live as those who are already adopted, as children of God, who are just living out their new identity in Christ? We don't need to judge the Galatians too harshly. We We need to really be serious in the way that we evaluate ourselves. And if in some of those questions that I ask to help us evaluate ourselves, if you found yourself answering in a way that might betray that you don't view God as much as your father as you do your taskmaster. And I hope that today you will begin to root yourself in the gospel again. Just like Paul was calling throughout Galatians, calling the Galatians back to remember the gospel that they had once believed. I'm calling you back, and the scripture is calling us back to believe the gospel that we first believed and believe that what Jesus did is enough. Our faith in him is enough. So let's look at verse 12 through 20, and we'll consider one more point before we close. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I, am, I have become as you are. You did me no wrong, and you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as, a, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I, testify to you, uh, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, the Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you might make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed with you, I wish I could be present with you now so that I could change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. That seems totally disjointed from what we were just reading. It seems like that could be too 
totally different thoughts. But I don't think it is. I think what Paul was saying initially in the first few verses, he was saying, I've been where you are. I've carried the burden of Judaism. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see Paul say, I was a Jew of Jews. According to the law, I was faultless. He has carried the weight that they are carrying. He's worn the shackles that they are wearing. And he knows that that law is no more able to save them and no more able to garner God's favor for them than paganism was. And so he's encouraging them, come back to the gospel. Shake loose those chains. Don't be the slave to something that can't save you. Come back to the gospel. Realign your life with what you know to be true. But then he spent verses and verses and verses talking about how kind they had been to him, how much they had loved him, and then underscoring the fact that the Judaizers were deceiving them and, and for, their own, for the Judaizers' own good. I think the reason that Paul was doing that is because up until this point in Galatians, from including what we just talked about and what would follow, Paul has given some really difficult truths for the Galatians to think about. He said some really controversial things. He said things that would rub them the wrong way. And he's even directly talking about their new friends, the Judaizers. And I think he wants them to know that this is coming from a place of love. He's saying, listen, look at, remember our history together. Remember the time I spent with you. Remember how good you were to me. I have no reason to do anything to harm you. In fact, I have every reason to show you how much I love you, and by telling you the truth, I'm doing that. Come back to the gospel. Realign your lives with the gospel. Take the shackles of Judaism off and realize that these people who are deceiving you are not doing it for your good. They're deceiving you for their good. Throughout Paul's ministry, he was willing to enter into these difficult conversations. We see it in several of his letters. Earlier in Galatians, we saw that he opposed Peter to his face, and it sounded like it was a pretty assertive opposition. And I think we can all assume that he was doing that both for the Galatians' good, who were seeing Peter's hypocrisy and believing it, and also for Peter's good, that Peter needed to be brought to repentance. Peter was living out of step with the gospel, so Paul was speaking the truth to him. But elsewhere, it's a lot more clear, and we know why Paul entered into difficult conversations. Throughout the book of Acts, we see him going into synagogues debating and arguing and reasoning with Jews. He was going to their place of worship on their holy day to argue with them. Why? Romans 9, 1 through 3, tells us, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul would have given his own salvation away if these people whom he loved could become, a belief, could become Christians. And so based on that, he was going into these arenas and having these difficult conversations with them that was certainly uncomfortable and certainly... Um, culturally inappropriate, but it was because of his love for them. 
Similarly, we see in 1 Corinthians, there was a man who was living in a particularly egregious sin, and Paul spoke into that situation and said, kick him out of the church. But why did he do that? He said, kick him out of the church so that he might be restored. Paul cared about that brother's soul so much that he was willing to say some really, really difficult things and enter into a really difficult uh, set of events. And ultimately, we know that that man was restored to the church. Paul loved people so much, and that's what we're seeing here in Galatians, that he loved people, the Galatians in particular, so much that he would say some really difficult things to them. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask myself, do I love people that much? I'm surrounded by people I say I love who don't know Jesus. Or maybe who do know Jesus, but they are walking far from the truth of the gospel. So I have to ask myself, do I really love them? And if the answer is yes, then I need to ask myself a follow-up question of, do I really believe all that I say that I believe? And if the answer is yes, then I don't have a choice but to contend for their souls. I don't have the, the option to be silent. And that doesn't end with difficult conversations. Really, the difficult conversations should come at the end of the process. The process begins with fasting and praying. If we love people enough to contend for their souls, we, we don't need to do it just through conversation. We need to do a lot of groundwork of praying and contending and begging God for their salvation. Because not only are our prayers powerful and effective, our prayers also change us. And so when I go to someone to have these difficult conversations and I haven't been in prayer and I haven't been uh, working toward their salvation in the spiritual realm, it's likely going to come across pretty judgmental and condemning. Or maybe even just as a checkoff box if I need to tell you this. But if I've spent hours on my face before God, begging him to save this person. That's going to come out. Do you have people like that in your life that you love so much that you would do anything for them to be saved? You can't be silent. <clears throat> we, we can't be silent. So as we land the plane today, so to speak, there's a couple of things that I think we can take away from today's text. First is that we are adopted children of God. We are in God Most High's family. Our identity is not in ourselves. Our identity is not in our nation or anything else. Our identity is in we are God's children. And so we should live as God's children. We should obey him as God's children as though we are his children, not his servants. God wants us to obey him because it's an overflow of our love, not because he told us to. Now, there are times we're not immune to emotions. We're not immune to the tides of life. There are times when we will persist in doing good just because we're supposed to, as, a, as an act of devotion to God. But that shouldn't be what characterizes our lives. What characterizes our lives should be 
a love for God that produces obedience, joyful obedience. So as we leave here today, I hope we'll all leave here and throughout the day, throughout the next couple of days, evaluate why do we do the good things that we do? Is it because of how much I've been given and how much I love God and so I want to live my life to please Him and make Him proud? Or is it because I'm, I'm afraid I'll disappoint Him and He won't love me as much as if I don't? Or worse, is it because I think that by doing these good things, I can manipulate Him into giving me blessings? Why do we do the good things that we do? If you find yourself in the camp of, I view God as a taskmaster, a, a distant pagan God, if you will, I encourage you over the next week just to saturate yourself with the gospel. Remind yourself of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Remind yourself of the fact that although he knows every fault of yours, although he knows every insecurity of yours, he loves you so much that he came and gave his life so that you could be a part of his family for eternity. It's only out of that message, that joyful obedience, and, and viewing God as your, your father, and not just a separate taskmaster, that only comes from being deeply rooted and washed in the gospel. And the second takeaway that I want us to leave here with today is that if we love people and if we believe what we say we believe, then we will contend for the souls of the people around us. Both the people that we know and the people that we don't. People in our country and the people who have never heard the name. We have to give our lives for them and for our Heavenly Father who wants them to be saved. He says it in his scripture. <laughs> He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If that's what God wants, that's what we should want. And so I hope that we'll share the burden that Paul carried. I hope that we will live as though we believe that we are children of God, and I hope that we will live to extend our family um, beyond the walls of this church, into our community, into our state, into our nation, into the world, um, out of joyful obedience to God. Nothing else would show the world that we love them and nothing else would honor and glorify our Father more than that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you um, for caring enough about us, for loving us enough to become one of us, to live as the creature, in a sense, and subjecting yourself to the tortures that your, creatures, that your creatures put on you so that you could save us. God, thank you for loving us despite our failures. Thank you for loving us in spite of our weaknesses and our insecurities. Thank you for calling all of us to you. God, if there's anybody in here today who's heard this message and realized that they They've never really put their faith in Jesus. They've never really received the adoption that is available to them. God, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that you would call them. I pray that they would sense your spirit. I pray that they would respond with belief. And I pray that they would get to experience all of the wondrous joys that come with knowing you and more than that, being known by you. 
God, I pray that you would receive um, our worship just as thanks to you for all that you've done to uh, for us and uh, for what you have made us despite ourselves. God, thank you for making us children of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.